Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by the American journalist and author Michael Pollan, whose new book is called How to Change Your Mind, Exploring the New Science of Psychedelics. Michael, welcome. Now, this is a book which, you know, appears to say that LSD and psilocybin and all these drugs which send people on, you know, extraordinary psychedelic trips are or could be a good thing. Isn't this going to be strike a lot of people as grossly irresponsible? <laughs> well, you know, I'm following scientific research that's been startling and, and very exciting in the last couple of years. Some of it happening here at Imperial College in London. A lot of it happening in the United States and Switzerland. That is taking a second look at these molecules to see if they might contribute to both our understanding of the mind and to uh, healing various forms of mental illness. And there have been a series of drug trials that have brought some encouraging data that, that may indeed be the case. So these drugs that many people, because of the way they got branded in the 1960s, associate them with going crazy may actually help make people more sane. Well, that's extraordinary. One of the things that you, you know, you call the book exploring the new science of psychedelics, but actually one of the jobs of the book is to disinter. Yes, in old, old science. science yeah, yeah there, yeah, there are two, yeah, there are two phases, two chapters. So like a lot of people, I kind of thought psychedelics began in the 1960s, and that, that's when they kind of came onto our radar uh, for most people. But I was surprised to learn that there had been this incredibly lively and productive period of research all through the 1950s in England and in the United States, especially on the West Coast and in Canada, of researchers using these drugs to treat alcoholism. That was a very common use, depression, anxiety, obsession, and they were getting good results. There were a thousand peer-reviewed papers on psychedelics, LSD mostly, between 1950 and the mid-60s, 40,000 research subjects, volunteers, and six international conferences on LSD. So it was, a, it was regarded as a psychiatric wonder drug for a period of time. It actually unlocked our understanding of neurochemistry. And the idea that LSD could, at such tiny, tiny doses, have such a profound effect on consciousness led to the discovery of neurotransmitters and their receptors and how that whole system worked. So they've been teaching us about the mind for quite a while. But, you know, that history was just completely buried. And I talked to many researchers, younger researchers, people in their 40s now, who said that they learned nothing about this in uh, studying for psychiatry in school. And that they're in the process, really, of, as you say, excavating this buried body of knowledge. And why was it buried? Because uh, what happened in the 60s was, uh, was really a moral panic. There were concerns about the drugs, and people were getting into trouble on the drugs, but they had become politically uh, radioactive. And President Nixon believed that it was LSD that was uh, f nurturing the, the, uh, the counterculture, and he was right to a considerable extent, and um, sapping the will of American boys to go to Vietnam, the questioning of authority that went on. And so... The um, the media turned against the drugs, which and the media had been very supportive. It was remarkable to look at the coverage of psilocybin, uh, which was introduced to Americans in the pages of in in, the, in a fifteen page article in Life magazine in nineteen fifty seven, an ecstatic <laughs> account of the first psilocybin trip taken by a banker, a New York banker named R. Gordon Wasson, who'd an amateur mycologist, and he traveled to uh, Oaxaca and found a healer who was willing to give him the, the, really the, the Westerners' first psilocybin journey. 
And and Time Life, which was the media empire, it was the Murdoch empire of its time, of course, had um, generally enthusiastic coverage of psychedelics right till 1965. And then you see the whole culture turn against them. And it was a moral panic. And people were convinced that these drugs were, you know, uh, basically destroying young minds. And, and these scare stories got started. And it became very hard for the researchers to continue well, thalidomide enters into here as well, doesn't it? Yeah. There's a story of so the, this kind of there's an interest going on. Exactly. So in 1962, you have the scandal around thalidomide, which is this new drug that's being given to pregnant women, I think as a sedative or help with morning sickness. I don't remember. And they and it turned out to produce uh, birth defects in great numbers. Thousands of children were born with very serious birth defects. And that led to a stiffening of the regulation, actually a invoking of regulation to how you how you certify drugs before you can introduce them to the pharmacopoeia. So it used to be pretty anything anything goes, but now you had to do control, double-blind studies, and there was this whole new regulatory regime, which was hard for psychedelics to, to, to fit into. I mean, they're very, it's very hard to control a, uh, a study of psychedelics. You can tell pretty much who got the who got the LSD and who got the placebo, and they can tell too. So that is a challenge that's still being addressed actually right now. So there was that, the funding dries up, and then it came out that the CIA was simultaneously conducting a very fertile period of research, although we don't know how fertile, uh, beginning in 1953. This is the MKUltra. Yeah, this is called MKUltra and sometimes called Project Artichoke for obscure reasons. Uh, And um, so the CIA all through the 50s was trying to weaponize LSD. They they thought it was good for something. They didn't know quite what. So they tried it as first as a truth serum. Didn't work. People said crazy stuff. Then they tried it as a a bioweapon. Maybe you would somehow put it in the water of some population or aerosolize it over it. And then as something that you could give to your enemies that would make them do foolish things. And we don't know exactly what they learned. Or a mind control. They were just trying to dose Castro, weren't they? I don't know if that was LSD. I know they were, they were yeah. always putting chemicals on his cigars and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, never, it never seemed to work. Uh, but LSD may have been involved in that. I, I, I don't know. So when this comes out in the early 60s, uh, early 70s, I'm sorry, it takes 20 years for it to come out. And... Some people died, and they were also dosing people without their permission or knowledge. They set up these brothels in San Francisco and New York where they would spike drinks with LSD and watch how these men behaved. I don't know what they learned. And, and then they also dosed their own employees and people in the Army. They would have parties and put it in the punch bowl and just kind of watch everybody. It was an incredibly cruel thing to do. Of course, the Grateful Dead were doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was an equally cruel thing to do. So... When this story comes out in the early 70s, it just, it, it, it doubles the, the stigma attached to these drugs and that, that, that such kind of evil research was being done with them. And, and, it, and then it comes out the CIA was paying for some of the legitimate research also. The whole thing, just scientists just backed off. And even though there, there, there was this general recognition that the drugs were effective for certain indications, nobody wanted to mess with them. And you have this, um, uh, basically by 1975 or so, no one is doing any research. And it's, a, it's an unprecedented situation in the history of science to have a, you know, this promising line of inquiry just stop. And it goes underground for 25, 30 years. I mean, there's just no legitimate research. But it's what, I mean, it seems to me, having, you know, as I was reading the book, that you know, you're talking about this sort of scientific advances. But as you say, a lot of what 
seems to be intrinsic to this subject is quite antithetical to the way we usually do science. You know, as you say, you can't control for it. It's radically subjective. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the experience of being on LSD isn't something that's kind of reduplicable between people or across populations. It's a, you know, it's something that sends you off in a completely personal direction. It also sends people off in a very spiritual direction. And and you have this very interesting situation where you have scientists, especially in the United States, doing scientific study of spiritual experience, of mystical experience. So it crosses all sorts of boundaries that are really interesting actually. And and it is you're right. It's challenging to science. It's challenging to the pharmaceutical industry. You know, when these treatments work, it's a single session, uh, maybe two sessions. So it and and you're not really healing people with a chemical. You're healing people with a kind of experience. So the drugs, if if the person doesn't have the kind of experience that's deemed therapeutic, which in America they call a mystical experience, in England they they're less comfortable with the, that vocabulary, and they'll talk about a experience of ego dissolution as being the key to the the sort of mental changes that the drugs can occasion. It doesn't work without that experience. So you're actually prescribing a psychological experience as much as a drug. And that's a weird concept too. The pharmaceutical industry is, is of course, the business model is selling pills you need to take every day. This one you take one, two, three pills. On the other hand, the, you know, the, the psychotherapy community is equally dependent on chronic uh, application of their, yes. their their skills, you know, the weekly session that goes on also forever. And here is this kind of quantum change idea for psychotherapy, which is so in, in so many ways, this is a, a square peg to fit in the round hole of science, of psychotherapy, of pharmaceutical industry. And that's what's interesting about it, because it, it tells us things about all those, all those worlds and yeah. how they I mean, work does- and don't work. One of the kind of, it's not quite a running joke, but a sort of constant presence as you go through the book, as you you put it very delicately, you know, a lot of these scientific experiments seem to be compromised by the enthusiasm of the researchers. Yeah. I mean, is one of the problems that you, you know, whatever it tells us is itself possibly quite subjective. You know, I mean, some people, you interview this guy who's a complete mushroom obsessive. Yeah. Who's got a theory. Paul Stamets. Yeah, Paul Stamets, who's got a sort of theory about how, you know, and he, he goes along with the stoned ape idea that yeah. human consciousness itself was kickstarted by right. psilocybin. Yeah, but also, I'm pretty skeptical of mushrooms are sort of using us. Right, you they're, know, they're sending they're us a message. Each other, they're sending us messages that the sort of global mycelium is. Yeah, and you also quote Henri Bergson's idea that the mind might simply be a tuning device, a tuning a device, radio. and that consciousness is a thing that's out there rather yeah. than in here. Yeah. Now, you know, these accounts of the universe seem to be sort of self-contained in a sense you know how do you how do you sort of argue against them how do you choose which is the correct diagnosis of what these things are telling us well we don't know i mean let me say a word for subjective experience we have no other way to understand consciousness right and what it is to be you what it what it feels like to be me science has no access to that Um, it's it's a black box and and will continue to be and some people think it will be forever that this is simply a, a realm of experience that can't be penetrated by the tools that we have or can even imagine so uh you can't study consciousness without crediting subjective experience. You need the phenomenology. You need to correlate what people are feeling with what you're seeing on your fMRI or whatever your measurement technique is. And I think that 
these theories of consciousness, even though I tend to believe that we will discover that consciousness is the product of brains, there are people, and psychedelics seem to encourage them in this belief, that it might not be so. Now, it's worth mentioning, though, that there are some very serious philosophers and scientists who do believe that consciousness may be a field, may be something that is one of the fundamental building blocks of the universe, along with uh, you know electromagnetism and gravity and, and these, all these other things that are just there, and that information or consciousness. And modern physics, you know, holds a kind of partial brief for this idea, and that Particles don't seem to have coordinates in reality until they're measured. Observed, yeah. yeah. And so it's just worth keeping an open mind about these ideas. And yeah, they sound very psychedelic. But modern physics is pretty psychedelic. And so I moved from a position of kind of strict old-fashioned materialism to not to a conversion, but to a more open mind about some of the... Uh, bizarre ideas that I was exposed to. There is a, there is a phenomenon of, of uh, what I call irrational exuberance that seems to come from the, the drugs and infect some of the scientists. I think everybody's trying to keep a lid on it because they saw what happened in the 60s. I mean, Timothy Leary was, was, you know, the object lesson. He's someone who started out as a very serious psychologist, scientist, and his experience with LSD and psilocybin convinced him or made him very impatient with science and he suddenly said you know this isn't about healing individuals this is about healing the civilization and so he became an evangelist of lsd rather than a researcher yes i mean there's a more there's a sort of hinge isn't there between the kind of parsimonious claim as you often put it in the book mm-hmm. which is that these things can help to cure or treat the symptoms of, you know, the fear of death in people with terminal diagnoses and addiction and, you know, all sorts of things that have depression, things that have to do with obsessive compulsive disorder, things that are kind of bound mm. up with, with R- the Rigid ego. thinking. Rigid and, thinking. And the ego, yeah. Ego. But then there's also you can see people peeking over the fence towards the idea that this might actually, these drugs might be good for the, the well. Yes, you know. the betterment of well people, as one of, of the people, researchers put it to me. Yeah, well, you know, we all have kind of, pale versions of rigid thinking, especially as we get older. You know, there's there's clinical depression and there's sadness and, and, and the occasional depressions that most people have. There's uh, addiction to some substance that ruins your life. And then there's the behavioral addictions we're all stuck in, you know, whether it's with our phones or, you know, checking Twitter or, all, you know, all the things we do. So we're, it's on a spectrum. I mean, you can't put people with depression, addiction, obsession over here in this box and say, oh, we're not, we don't recognize that. We're nothing like it. Those, those, those illnesses are not quite like schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder. They're intensified versions of the human condition in some ways. And so these, these medicines have value for people who are just dealing with garden variety unhappiness or who, are ha- who have habits of thought and behavior they'd like to break. At least that's what I found. And, um, you know, as part of this book, I decided I needed to have some of these experiences myself. And I hadn't had any. I was, I was psychedelically naive, as the, as the researchers say, and certainly was true, that I think that they do have a value for, you know, I don't want to say all of us, because I, I don't want to see, see what happens. You slip the, the bonds of, <laughs> of reasonable credibility, but for many of us. And I think especially as we, as we grow older, when we do get stuck, 
and we're you know there's a certain age at which you know i mean our understanding of the brain now is that predictive coding is really the key that that what you perceive as a model you have in your head that you've learned over time and that you take in as little sensory information as you possibly can get away with and then make an image and make a perception and, and then you correct this it is essentially a kind of the argument that your restricted version of consciousness you know, your brain is a sort of computational efficiency thing that your brain's yeah, trying to go through right. the world in the most. Yeah, it uses little energy as possible, and rather than go to the trouble of perceiving a tree, seeing a certain pattern of green and light and fractal nature, and uh, and say tree, we don't really take in a tree until it turns out oh, it was actually an antenna, and you know we get some information that violates the model and we fix it. This seems to be how perception works. Over time, I think that model takes over our lives, and we develop mental algorithms for everything. You know, how to soothe a child, how to resolve a fight with your spouse, how to, how to deal with a challenge at work. And we have these, these little programs we run, and they're very efficient and very adaptive, but they also blind us to the present moment and to experience and to novelty and wonder and surprise. And so that handshake between the prediction and the reality, if we can use that word, breaks down with psychedelics in a way that can be frightening and confusing, but it also can free us from these deep grooves of thought that we get into, and they're very good for breaking habits. Yeah, one of the things that's slightly sort of fascinating in the book is that you have, you quote Alison Gopnik's idea of lantern consciousness, saying mm. that actually these, these routines, these kind of narrow little algorithms through which we read the world, are actually learnt. Yeah. You know, the, oh, when yeah. we're born, we don't we're, start we're that basically way. tripping nonstop. Yeah, she believes. She's a child psychologist at, uh, at Berkeley and a colleague of mine. And she was very helpful in, 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 as I was writing this book. I met with her several times because I, I didn't know anything about neuroscience and, and very little about psychology of children. And um, she basically says that there are two kinds of consciousness. There's the kind of very focused spotlight consciousness that, that adults acquire allows us to block out lots of information and focus on a task. And then there is the consciousness of children, which is designed for learning and developing all those models and priors. And that takes in lots more information from all over, from you know, the full 360-degree spectrum. It's why children can't focus very well, but it's also why they can learn faster than we can certain things. I mean, watch your little kid pick up a phone at age two. And, and figure out how to manipulate this or an iPad. It's, it's a remarkable thing to watch. And that's because they don't have a model in their head of this is what a phone is supposed to do or that happens on a computer. They're just kind of doing what the AI researchers would call hot searches. In other words, not the, not the thing that worked yesterday, but anything. Oh, I'm going to try to see if I can figure this out. And they often, often sense it uses a lot of energy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Hot search in you know in any field of possible solutions to a problem, you've got the ones that worked yesterday and the day before pretty well, and those are cold searches, and they're right there, and and that's usually what you apply to any problem, and a, and a computer does when it's doing artificial intelligence. And then you have these hot searches, which are less likely to work, but may be kind of stunning in their originality and. Many great breakthroughs are the result, or or new metaphors, or you know, great lines of in literature are are the result of hot searches. So you know, wasteful of energy, but incredibly productive in terms of moving culture along. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's a sort of strong cultural association between the psychedelics. You know, they're they're all down as drugs. Mm. And, you know, everything from you know heroin and cocaine to psilocybin and 
marijuana, whatever it is, gets lumped in as drugs. The particular substances you're talking about are, I mean, I guess, psilocybin, LSD, DMT. DMT, yeah. The classic Awas psychedelic. Which yeah. is DMT as well. Which is DMT. Said, yeah. What have these tr- things got in common? They're, yeah. You know, what is it that marks them out from... Right. You know, because you're not encouraging people to go out and smoke crack. No, and I think we make a mistake by lumping all drugs together. They're fundamentally different. And then where do you put caffeine, and where, you know, which we're enjoying right now? And where do you put uh, alcohol? I mean, there's, you know, the absurdity of the classification system. You know, Mike Jay's written brilliantly about that. Is is just an artifact of our society. But you go to another society, and they have a whole different classification system where alcohol is the evil drug, and you can have opium tea at a funeral, and so. I think we have to, you know, stipulate the irrationality of this. But chemically, what's, but what's yeah, the so what they have in common is their tryptamines. It's a class of chemical. Uh, the most famous tryptamine is coursing through your body right now. That's serotonin, and they're very chemically. They look very much like serotonin, and they fit the lock of the serotonin two A or two A receptor, five two A receptor. And this receptor, which is all over your body, we don't know what it's doing. It's all over your gut, too. Um, we don't know exactly why. But, and a lot of serotonin is manufactured in the gut. But it's very prominent in the cortex, the evolutionarily most recent part of the brain. And LSD fits into that receptor even better than serotonin does, which is a kind of weird mystery. And that's why the LSD experience lasts so long. It kind of gets stuck there. And so, And these chemicals don't seem to affect that many systems in the body besides the brain. And the problem with a lot of drugs is that they, they, they affect the cardiovascular system, they affect the liver, you know, I mean, but these are, are very targeted in their effects. And that's why they're remarkably non-toxic as drugs go. And I'm, I'm saying all drugs. I mean, you have drugs in your medicine cabinet that are more toxic than LSD. There's no lethal dose of LSD or psilocybin that we've been able to find. Once an elephant was killed with a massive dose of LSD, but he got an equal amount of um, tranquilizer too. So we don't know what killed. Who dosed that elephant? I don't know who it was, but it was one of the most horrible experiments I've ever read about. (laughs) So it's so it is you know figuratively say enough LSD to kill an elephant. Yes, somebody had to find out that has been killed. Yes. Anyway, you can look it up online. Are there any permanent effects from extremely high dose? You know, those apocryphal things of. I mean, when I was a Student in Oxford, there was a guy who used to wander around muttering, and he was known as Cosmic Bob. And the story was that he, yeah, too much. You know, yeah, the police had caught him, and he swallowed his entire sheet of blotter acid to yeah. get in court, and that was him done. Yeah, is are those stories complete folklore, or if you take a really high dose, are you essentially not? I, you come know, back? I haven't seen much research on very high dose. You know, people accidentally ingesting. There was a there was a horrible story of a child who got a a hold of his parents' stash of LSD in the 60s and was dissociated for a couple months, but eventually came back, just had lost contact with reality. And, and I mean, it must have been a horrifying experience for that child. So, you know, it, I mean, a high dose, no doubt, can lead to mental problems. I mean, there are definitely risks. Look, people, you know, people have jumped off buildings on LSD. That's, that's a reality. We have to realize that. But, but we also should keep in mind that People jump off of buildings on SSRI antidepressants commonly, and it doesn't get into the news because it's just considered one of the side effects of this drug, but that the, that the, the benefits outweigh the risks. But suicide attached to LSD becomes a huge story because it fits into this narrative going back to the 60s. But one of the things that, again, you say in the book, is it's not just the chemical. 
it's the you experience. Know, certain setting or important your know, expectations, the circumstances in which yeah. you take these these chemicals, and you kind of look backwards in a way towards the sort of shamanic traditions, mm-hmm. which originally. Can you talk a bit about this idea of these guides, this network yeah. of people you spoke to, who actually don't just say, you know, drop drop a tab of acid or eat a bunch of mushrooms and you know yeah. you'll be cured or you'll right. be better or you'll no, have a No, I'm time. glad you brought that up because I, I think people have an image when they talk about taking LSD or mushrooms, whether for therapeutic reasons or not, that you take a handful of mushrooms and you go to the beach or you walk around the woods or something. This is a very these are in this clinical setting, whether it's above ground in university trials or underground, it turns out there is an underground of therapists who are working with these chemicals. It's a very carefully controlled and regulated experience. So you have a guide or two in the university trials who are with you the entire time. You have preparatory sessions where they tell you what to expect, what to do if you get into trouble. The advice basically consists of telling you to surrender to whatever happens and not fight the experience of ego dissolution or um, uh, sense you're going crazy or dying to, to go with it. Uh, it's the resistance that gives people um, what we call a bad trip, uh, the anxiety of trying to fight something you can't, you can't really fight. And then during the, during the session, they sit with you. They don't say very much, but they're there. They're present. They offer you a hand if you're getting really upset. They check in with you. They help you get, get up, get a glass of water, get up and go to the bathroom, whatever. And then afterwards, and this is Perhaps the most important part, there is a, a, a session that they call an integration session, which is kind of the, most, the closest to conventional psychotherapy, where you tell the story of what happened and, and try to make sense of it with their help, and then try to figure out how to apply whatever insights you may have had to your life. And, and that really is how it endures, you know, by, by lessons learned and applied. So it's... It's a very deliberate process. It's It has this container. What's interesting about the shamanic tradition is that, you know, when these drugs burst upon the West, and largely in the 50s and the 60s, the molecules came alone, and they, they had been shorn of any kind of context, any kind of cultural context. And so there was a lot of confusion how best to use them, and a lot of experiment, both formal and informal. But there's a lot to be learned, I think, from the context in which they've been used before. And, and I'm talking about going back thousands of years, whether you're talking about the ancient Greeks or the Mazatec Indians or the Aztecs or uh, the Amazonian Indians who used these drugs. They used them in a very deliberate manner. No one took the drugs alone, except maybe a shaman occasionally to check, the, you know, have a, have a, you know, divine something or find a lost object, whatever. But basically, they were done in um, uh, with an elder who was always in charge. They were often, uh, all, I mean, only done at certain very special occasions with a certain purpose in mind. The Eleusian mysteries of the Greeks, which we believe uh, involved the ingestion of a psychedelic potion of some kind, we don't know what it is. They were very secretive about this. You, that was the only day you could consume that potion. And if it was a capital crime if you were found with it in any other context. And there was always ceremony. There was always a, a ritual around it. So there was a cultural container to, to kind of marshal and control the energies of these very powerful substances. And then we got them, and we didn't know. We, we thought you'd take them like any other drug, but they're unlike any other drug. And so I think what's happening now is we're in the process of devising 
such a container that suits us. The model we have is this medical one, but it owes a lot to the shamanic tradition. I mean, you know, doctors are our shamans. We, we impute authority to them. When they give you a pill, it works much better than if I give you a pill. And we don't like to think of them that way, but that white coat. And, and actually, they, sociological work, they know that. There's a, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a ceremony at the medical school at Columbia University now where they, they, you get to wear the white coat for the first time. And there are all these rituals. And it's the handing of the, you know, the sacred object to the, to the shaman. And, and whether they're aware of it in those terms or not, I don't know. But there's no other way to interpret it. Now, do, there's a, another running line in the book where you talk about you know, you say that the first and only ever innocent psychedelic trip mm-hmm. was, you know, Albert Hoffman's, Hoffman's famous yeah. bicycle ride. And that afterwards, everybody's experience of taking psychedelics is in a, in a sense a quotation because this whole business is set and setting or expectations shaping your trip mean that, you know, what Aldous Huxley wrote or, you know, the sort of South American vibe with mushrooms. Yeah actually shapes the sort of hallucinations people have. Yeah. Do you think that that accounts for those sometimes slightly strange commonalities that people's psychedelic experiences have? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, notoriously on DMT. Yeah, the entities. People see these machine elves, as they're called, these kind of tin elves that everybody seems to see. But I don't know if anyone saw them before Terence McKenna started talking about them. You know, yeah. and that's a really interesting question. And there, there's going to be an experiment now at Imperial College. It's amazing they really? got this approved. Yeah, of DMT and looking. And I said, "What are you trying to answer?" And I thought they'd have some medical issue or psychological issue. And now we want to look into the entities and see if it's if indeed it's common and and if the entities say the same thing to people. And I was I was stunned that this was actually going to be researched. It's curious. I, I would assume that people bring entities to the experience, but there are a lot of people who don't think so. They think that they're actually meeting beings from another dimension. I, I can't go that far. <laughs> but of course, I haven't tried DMT. <laughs> and, and just as you know, we're running out of time, but you know, we haven't talked much about your own experiences. You're very positive about the one or two big psilocybin trips you took, but this toad venom seems yeah. to have been pretty hairy. <laughs> I did. I had a very, I had what, what anyone I think would call a bad trip and certainly an experience I wouldn't wish on anybody. And so there's this, a pretty obscure psychedelic called 5-MeO-DMT. And the chemical is produced in the venom of the Sonoran Desert toad. But you have to smoke it because there are various toxins you need to burn off. And these toads are found in from Tucson, Arizona, south to Sonora, Mexico. And they only come out for a little while, in you know, for a month or so to eat and copulate in the rainy season. And you can catch them pretty easily at that point. They're big. And you just kind of gently squeeze these glands on their side and, and on their legs, and, and, it'll, and it'll shoot out this um, liquid, and you catch it on a piece of glass, dries overnight, and you have this, these sugary-looking crystals, um, brown crystals, and then you vaporize them. And Does the, history tell us how somebody first found No, it's, it's, you know, it's a testament to human ingenuity, right? <laughs> or desperation that, that somebody figured this out. I'm so impressed. Um, now, if you eat this stuff, you die. But hey, let's try smoking it. <laughs> so anyway, somebody figured it out. It's not of great antiquity. Apparently, this may have been figured out like in the 70s. The same drug, though, is found in many plants in the Amazon. And there's a snuff version that basically does the same thing, I'm told. Anyway, the experience is very sudden. Before I even exhaled, 
this one big puff I took, I was completely obliterated uh, as a as a person. My sense of time was obliterated. My sense of space and material reality was obliterated. I, I, everything was reduced to pure energy, and I was in a field. I was I was in a energy field. I mean, it was like a Category Five hurricane in my head. Although it was not bound by my skull, because it was everything. It was horrifying, and I just remember saying to myself, "Trust, surrender, trust." I'd had this little mantra, and and, and these and these words were like little pieces of paper being blown around and uh and imagine trying to describe it right because how do you tell a story without person place or time you need that one of those you need those ingredients and i didn't have them the best thing about the experience is it's short and within 20 minutes maybe even 15 minutes i i, I watched or felt as reality reconsolidated itself and i felt i had a body and there was matter and time. The concept of time reemerged. I could hear the music playing in time. And the good thing about the experience, if there was any good thing, was that I had a sense of gratitude as profound as I have ever had. Not just to be alive. <laughs> Fine. Okay. Gratitude that there is anything. <laughs> gratitude that there is something rather than nothing. And it was a kind of ecstasy that, but only earned through torment and pain. So that's why I don't think I'll do that one again. No. <laughs> Good thing to be grateful for, Michael Pollan. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. 